as I said, I, I was cleaning out my office today, and the, you know, a, a, as well as a, a bunch of pictures of myself uh, that I found. And oh, I found, you know, I found the old. All right, sorry, but the, I'd never, I don't remember ever having seen this picture that was from August of 1950, which means I was five months old. My mother holding me. I'd, I'd never seen. That's the youngest I'd ever seen a picture of myself. So that was kind of. I, I don't know. Does anybody care? I'm thinking like you know, Throwback Thursday. I've got like you know, gotten it taken care of for the next three months. Not that I ever do that, but so I'm just going to read to you tonight, mostly. I mean, I may commentate, and uh, and then uh, you can re- you can uh, say what you think. But I think this is a really interesting piece, and it comes from Ajinamaro, and it's uh, dated September twenty second, two thousand seven, from the Abhayagiri website. Ajinamaro is a Theravadan Buddhist monk, and Abhayagiri is a monastery uh, near Ukiah. And it's entitled, What Exactly Do You Mean by I Am? Some Buddhist Reflections on a Familiar Christian Theme. And then it starts out with the quote from the Bible, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John chapter 14, verse 6. Familiar phrase probably for most of us uh, and uh, and one that I think also I bring it up because step seven could have mentions him and God removing so I thought maybe we could get into a little bit of talk about higher power and and if you're familiar with Ajahnamaro you'll recognize his his voice his his speaking and writing voice uh, are very similar a number of years ago, I was invited to join with Father Lawrence Freeman, OSB, to co-lead an evening of reflections at Old St. Mary's Catholic Cathedral in San Francisco. This was something of a follow-up to the seminar entitled The Good Heart that His Holiness the Dalai Lama had led in London in 1994, where he was invited by the World Community for Christian Meditation to give commentaries on the Gospels. Father Lawrence had hosted and chaired that event, and I had also been honored to take part. One of the people who had greatly appreciated that event and the richness of interreligious dialogue that it had roused was Janice Del Fiaco, a, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, a Bay Area resident. She was keen to encourage similar discussions in her hometown, so the gathering in San Francisco was arranged. Furthermore, just as His Holiness the Dalai Lama had commented on the texts from the Gospels, she asked if I would do the same and if Father Lawrence would give reflections on something from the Buddhist scriptures. I pointed out from the start that, like His Holiness the Dalai Lama, I was an amateur at Christianity and could not speak authoritatively from Latin or Greek sources. However, as Father Lawrence pleaded the same ignorance of Pali and Sanskrit, and the spirit of the event was the reflections of contemplatives rather than textual analyses by scholars, we agreed that such lack of scholarship should not be an obstacle. We would just refer to received texts and offer reflections on that basis. Similarly, in this current essay, I can only refer to derived sources and offer comments based on direct experience. The reader is encouraged to bear that in mind as you proceed. When we pondered what passages might be most interesting and useful to the group that would be gathering in the shadowy hallows of the cathedral, one quote from the, quote from the Gospels immediately came to mind. How about, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes unto the Father except through me, I suggested, a little brashly. Really? 
queried Father Lawrence, his face taking on an expression wrought of surprise, interest, and a little anxiety. Do you think that's wise? I think it's ideal, I responded. It's the verse of the Bible that's most often quoted to us when someone is speaking from a triumphalist or exclusionist position, trying to assert that whatever it is that we Buddhists believe, or those of any faith other than Christian, it must be wrong. However, when you look at that verse reflectively, it is a very powerful meditation teaching. Since we only had enough time for one piece each, and perhaps in response to my idea to use John 14.6, he chose for himself to recount the Kalama Sutta. This is the teaching where the Buddha encourages his listeners not to believe in scripture, logic, parental tradition, common custom, or even the words of a trusted teacher like himself, but rather to weigh the efficacy of any spiritual teaching or practice by the real wealth of goodness that it brings to one's life. If it leads to welfare for yourself and others, take it and use it. If it leads to difficulty and division, leave it aside. Even though my parents were not churchgoers, I was educated in Church of England schools with a short service and Bible reading at the start of each day. The way that this verse from John came across to me from early childhood was always somewhat off-putting. There was a harshness in the way it was always pronounced. Jesus was made to sound like an aggressive elder brother guarding the door to dad's office, or a bossy prefect proud of his privileged position. More to the point, it was used to say, Christianity is right and everybody else is wrong. Globally today, it doesn't seem to be an exaggeration to say that this is most often how the words are used, and almost certainly the reason for Father Lawrence's reticence at my commenting on it. Just recently, September 2006, there it was on the placards of some ardent evangelists outside the Dalai Lama's teachings in Pasadena, good-hearted folks either eager to save us from the fiery pits. <laughs> from the earliest times that I began to think about such things, when I was six or seven years old, I wondered... What makes them right? They say that, but can they prove it? So it was at this time that I eventually abandoned Christianity, mostly because of the demand to believe what was not credible or provable to me. It was only in later years I realized that if the words were taken on a personal level, understood only to support tribalist tendencies, my team is better than yours, we are missing a rich and liberating teaching. My introduction to Buddhism, meditation, and monastic life all occurred in Thailand. After having been there for a couple of years, I returned to England and to Chittavetika. Am I pronouncing that right? Chittavivika, sorry. I should know that. The monastery in West Sussex that had recently been opened by Ajahn Sumedho, who happens to be at a Baigiri right now, for those who would like to drive up and see him. It was not so much that an interest in Christianity arose in me then, it was more that being in a Buddhist monastery in England rather than Thailand, there was a steady trickle of visitors and encounters with Christians, some of whom were committed and others who were questioning or straight out aversive to it. Suffice to say that there was more talk of and thus cause to reflect on Christian teachings than I had been exposed to since I left school in 1973, some seven years before. I did not now recall what brought it to mind one day, perhaps a talk by Ajahn Sumedho or a chat with one of the monastery's guests. But I have a clear memory of sitting in meditation one evening and bringing to mind the verse from John, I am the way and the truth and the life. It then occurred to me, I have been meditating for a few years now and I have a clear understanding of both what the way and the truth are. But neither of these have anything whatsoever to do with Jesus. Hmm... That's a quote. It says, hmm. 
There were no doubts in my mind that I was agonizing over. I was simply using the faculties of wise reflection, Yanaso Manasikara, and the investigation of reality, Dhamma Vichaya, in order to explore this interesting theme. The topic then proceeded to unfold further. Well, if I know what the way and the truth are, and they are this current experience of reality, then Jesus Christ was obviously using the words I am in a way very different to that put forth by the evangelical and triumphalist voices. Aha! Maybe that's it. I then recollected that once when Ajahn Sumedho had been remarking on this passage, he had said to me, to me that just means be mindful. These words immediately brought to mind the famous verse from the Dhammapada, mindfulness is the path to the deathless, heedlessness is the path to the death. The mindful never die, the heedless are as if dead already. Dhammapada 21. As these phrases formed in my memory, it became clear that mysteriously these two passages from the Bible and the Buddhist scriptures seemed almost analogous, given a little flexibility with religious symbolism and terminology. I am fully aware that it can be presumptuous, if not downright dangerous, to put words into the mouths of others, especially great seers and sages. However, it should be remembered that these reflections are offered here in the spirit of being for contemplation rather than as being categorical statements. In this way, the hope is that they will be a cause for fertile insights to arise and novel realizations to be sparked. On one occasion, a Catholic priest who had been staying at one of Ajahn Chah's monasteries asked, do you think the goal of the spiritual life according to Christians and that according to Buddhists is the same goal? Ajahn Chah responded, how could there be two ultimate realities? If there were, one of them wouldn't be ultimate. So if we assume that Ajahn Chah's insight was correct, that means we are talking about a single ultimate reality that can be realized through many and various skillful means, and that can be symbolized in a variety of ways. The term, let me just break here. The term, the Father, is used throughout the Gospels to refer to God being the ultimate reality. Ajahn Buddhadasa, a highly influential Buddhist master of the 20th century and one of Thailand's great philosopher monks, as well as a translator of the Bible into Thai, has said that Dhamma, or Dharma in Sanskrit, is the best translation in Thai for the word God. Thus the subtitle of my second book, Dharma God. The two the two principles having, I'm sorry, let me go back after that short commercial. All right. Dhamma is the best translation in Thai for the word God. The two principles having many characteristics, e.g. immortality or deathlessness, in common. The key difference is that Dhamma cannot be personified in any way. That is, it cannot be rendered as some kind of separate being. It is rather the transcendent reality which is the source and fabric of all mental and physical realms. However, if we take the liberty of laying aside the personal element for the time being, then the verse from John can be re-rendered, no one comes to the deathless reality except through me. By drawing these parallel passages together, and in this equating of terms then, if the Father is equivalent to the deathless, the I am has its counterpart in mindfulness. In Pali, the word translated here as mindfulness is apamada, which can also be rendered as heedfulness or awakened awareness. It means a fully attuned, wholehearted knowing of the present moment, free from any delusory biases and embedded in a profound and genuine wisdom. 
The implication of Jesus' statement, I am the way and the truth and the life, when taken in this way, is thus that mindful awareness is the embodiment of his nature, what some have called the Christ consciousness. The use of the words, the life, in the verse from John is also echoed in the Buddha's words, the mindful never die. Interestingly, it is further borne out in other statements from the Gospel of John. He that believeth on the Son, he that believeth on the th- on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. John three thirty six. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall be shall he live, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. John eleven twenty five twenty six. Along with these words of Jesus, there are obviously various ways that this phrase of the Buddhas can be understood. If it's taken at a superficial level, it sounds as though the Buddha is saying, if you play your cards right and are careful enough, your body will never die. Since his own body ceased to live after 80 years, that's a big clue that he's not talking about bodies here. Rather, he is saying that when there is full awakened awareness, then there is no identification with the body or conditioned factors of mind. The realization of the Dhamma is so complete that the life or death of the body is of as little consequence as the turning of the earth is to the sun. The body and mind are not self, as is reiterated so often in the Buddhist scriptures, so the heart remains serene with all of life's ups and downs, its many psychological births and deaths, triumphs and failures, as well as the big death of the body's ending. As St. Teresa of Avila put it, when expounding in this same theme, we die before we die, so that when we die, we won't die. Even though numerous Christian groups think in terms of the physical resurrection of all bodies of the faithful on Judgment Day, to the contemplative heart, it seems highly likely that Jesus was intending his words to be understood in the same manner as the Buddha, and just as St. Teresa captures the essence of it in her succinct aphorism. Another point of to emphasize here is that in Buddhist philosophy, mindfulness, sati or apamada, holds a uniquely significant position. It is the first of the seven facts of enlightenment, and as such was said by the Buddha to be always useful. The development of the four foundations of mindfulness was said by the Buddha to be ekayana maga, sometimes also triumphalistically translated as the only way to deliverance, but is more faithfully rendered the direct path for the purification of beings. That's Majjhima Nikaya 10.2. And Sati is the pivotal member of the five spiritual faculties. Most importantly, however, this same quality of wakefulness is seen as being the very essence of the Buddha's nature. This is in fact why the Buddha, meaning the one who is awakened or the one who knows, has come to be used as the primary epithet of the great teacher. And here he then Uh, we go into a a, uh, sutta. At one time, the Blessed One was traveling by the road between Ukata and Sitavaya, and the Brahman Dona was traveling by that road too. He saw in the Blessed One's footprints wheels with a thousand spokes and with rims and hubs all complete. Then he thought, it is wonderful, it is marvelous, surely this can never be the footprint of a human being. And the Blessed One left the road and sat down at the root of a tree, cross-legged with his body held erect, and mindfulness established before him. And the Brahman Dona, who was following up the footprints, saw him sitting at the root of the tree. 
The Blessed One inspired trust and confidence, his faculties being stilled, his mind quiet, and attained to supreme control and serenity. A royal tusker, self-controlled and guarded by restraint of the sense faculties. The Brahmin went up to him and asked, Sir, are you a god? No, Brahmin. Sir, are you a heavenly angel? No, Brahmin. Sir, are you a spirit? No, Brahmin. Sir, are you a human being? No, Brahmin. Then, sir, what indeed are you? Brahman, the defilements by means of which, through my not having abandoned them, I might be a god or a heavenly angel or a spirit or a human being, have been abandoned by me, cut off at the root, made like a palm stump, done away with, and are no more subject to future arising. Just as a blue or red or white lotus is born in water, grows in water and stands up above water untouched by it, so too I, who was born in the world and grew up in the world, have transcended the world, and I live untouched by the world. Remember me as one who is awakened, Buddha. It's from Anguttara Nikaya 4.36. So, <laughs> mindful awareness is not just part of the way, one prerequisite condition for realizing ultimate truth. It can also be said to be an embodiment of it as well. Furthermore, just as Jesus Christ equates himself with truth in the verse from John, the Buddhist scriptures also equate on other occasions the physical manifestation of spiritual awakenedness, awakenedness and the, the ultimate reality. For example, the story so far is that the Bhikkhu Vakali has fallen gravely ill and the Buddha has come from his dwelling at the squirrel sanctuary in the bamboo grove near Rajagaha to pay him a visit. The Buddha asks him how he is doing, and after recounting to the master that his sickness is work, worsening, he expresses that one regret, that one, the one regret remaining in his heart. Quote, For a long time, venerable sir, I have wanted to come and see the Blessed One, but I haven't been fit enough to do... So, sorry. Enough, Akali. Why do you want to see this filthy body? One who sees the Dhamma sees me. One who sees me sees the Dhamma. For it is when one sees the Dhamma that they see me. It is when they see me that they see the Dhamma. On a different occasion, so, so much like the, I, you know, only through me do you come to God. On a different occasion, one of the enlightened disciples, Venerable Maha Kachana, extolled the qualities of the Buddha's nature. For knowing, the Blessed One knows. Seeing, he sees. He is vision, he is knowledge, he is the Dhamma, he is the Holy One, he is the Sayer, the Proclaimer, the Elucidator of Meaning, the Giver of the Deathless, Lord of the Dhamma, the Tathagata. Majjama 18.12 All of these instances of identification with truth by the Buddha or his disciples should, however, be considered in the light of the emphasis he gave to the fact that the Tathagata is the only one who points the way. Akataro Tathagata Merely by staying close to him or clinging to his teaching can never be enough to liberate the heart. We have to make the effort ourselves to go in the direction he is pointed, pointing. If we now refer back to the verse from John and we reread it in a non-personal way, it too seems to encourage this same quality of self-reliance. If it is read to say, awakened awareness is the way, the truth, and the life, no one can realize the deathless unless it is through this quality. 
then we are similarly thrown back onto our own resources. It's up to us to rouse the energy, interest, and resolve, and to consider wisely how to let go of those attributes that obstruct the heart, and to cultivate and maintain those that clarify it. It implies that there needs to be an effort from within, as well as assistance from without, that we can helpfully derive from those who point the way and who can embody the truth for us. In offering these reflections, I am aware that depersonalizing the Christian teachings might be illuminating to some, but be off-putting, distressing, or confusing to others. For many practicing Christians, the most important element of their faith is a personal relationship with God, and I have no intention to be dismissive toward that dimension of spiritual practice. It's simply that, from the Buddhist perspective, perspective, there are many and various ways of exploring the mystery of experience and arriving at a unified quality of peace, freedom, and fulfillment, total spiritual emancipation. It is also about this point in the discussion that it's often asked, what about love? Doesn't that come into into it for you? The sacred heart of Jesus is more than just mindfulness. Surely, and for many, the love they feel that comes from God or Mary and Jesus, or Jesus is a tangible presence, as is the love they extend to the deities in return. In response to this, I often ask, just as one can inquire on being quoted for John 14, 6, what exactly do you mean by I am? What exactly do you mean by love? Interestingly, both of these questions are usually met with an identical silence. When you get right to the core of it, the experience of loving totally or being totally, of being loved totally is an experience of wholeness. At that moment, self and other Lover and loved have been lost in the presence of completion. Having an external object or person that is the focus of devotion is one way that the experience of the wholeness of reality can be arrived at, but it is by no means the only one. In the Buddhist traditions of the Southern or Theravada school, even the Buddha is certainly described as embodying an all-encompassing love. A substantial emphasis is also made on the non-personalizing language of the scriptures. In Buddhist philosophy, a phrase like, the Dhamma loves me, is utterly meaningless and is found in no Buddhist traditions whatsoever. It is also, more importantly, impossible to place the Dhamma outside yourself, even as some kind of non-personal element. It is seen, rather, as we see nature, as something every aspect of ourselves is intrinsically a part of. To quote another famous passage from the Gospels that alludes somewhat to this same principle, the kingdom of God is within you. Luke 17.21. The northern Buddhist traditions have developed more in the way of devotional practices directed towards various deities and lofty spiritual beings, such as the recitation of the name of Amitabha Buddha, Kuan Yin Bodhisattva, or the various forms of deity yoga, where a deliberate invocation of a divine other is employed to open the heart to reality. However, such practices are always seen in Buddhist tradition as skillful means, upaya, to help break through limited habits of vision. Thus, there might be a profound, devoted relationship to Kuan Yin Bodhisattva in the heart of an aspirant. Nevertheless, that devotion is recollected within the light of emptiness and the not-self teachings. When asked whether Tara really existed, a Tibetan Lama once replied, she knows that she's not real. (laughs) These two methodologies, deliberate self-reliance on the one hand and conscious adherence to a revered being on the other, are often are both seen within Buddhist tradition as valid spiritual paths. However, the path of self-reliance 
is seen as the most direct and understandably more demanding. It's the path straight up the mountain. Uh, and he's quoting a Japanese practice that, which is uh, uh, having a deity, I guess. Whereas the Tariki practices, although seen as effective, are more circuitous and can be compared to the winding lanes that transcend the mountain at a more gentle grade. Interestingly enough, some Christian contemplatives have also recognized these complementary qualities to be part of the spiritual life. In his Ascent of Mount Carmel, St. John of the Cross describes various spiritual practices using this same simile of a spiritual peak that needs to be climbed as his central image. The most demanding and direct of all the approaches he outlines is referred to as the way of pure spirit. And in his analysis of its nature, he summarizes it as nothing, 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 and even on the mountain, nothing. By the use of this expression, it seems he is pointing to an equivalent, complete non-identification with and a letting go of all things, internal and external, as the way. This is the same radical quality of non-clinging that is exemplified in the nature of the Buddha and as is borne out in the verse 21 from the Dhammapada. Neither does the pure heart have anything, nor does it lack anything. It is simply ultimate reality, aware of its own nature. This quality is evinced both in Jesus' words from John 10.30, I and the Father are one, and also in the Buddha's words to Vakali, one who sees the Dhamma sees me, one who sees me sees the Dhamma. As a final word, the reflections presented here are offered in the spirit of spiritual cross-fertilization and dialogue, just as similar themes were on that evening at Old St. Mary's Catholic Cathedral. It is hoped that these wonderful teachings might be seen in a somewhat more universal way, which it would seem could only be a good thing. Needless to stay, say, if we want our team always to be seen as the best, and we are clinging to our beliefs in a plaintive effort, either to fill up the roaring vastness of the unknown, or because we are still carrying around our raft, although we are already on the safe shore, well, these reflections will not have been of much use. Whatever is the case, may the reader take what is useful and illuminating here, and the rest can be gently laid aside. Abayagiri Monastery, 6th of October, 2006. I hope that wasn't too tedious having me just read to you, but uh, I just, uh, Ajahnamaro has been a very important teacher to me, and I know many of you know him, or at least some of you, and, uh, and sort of to get the whole package, I think, is the best way to receive that, although I can see in the future there's some good quotes I can pull out of this. So as I as I said earlier, the the first thing that struck me personally as a as a teacher and, and as a student, as myself being a teacher and being a student of Ajahnamaro, is how his emphasis on, uh, is you know towards the deathless and sort of towards more towards enlightenment. Whereas I'm working more in this kind of gritty karma level. Um, but but I think there's it's, there's also something really elegant about how he puts this together, um, and uh, and the, uh, this the, you know what he's doing is so much similar to what I do with the twelve steps, which is trying to bring some sort of get at the essence of these teachings, and and I think I find his. His analysis very credible, and his take on, and it ultimately really helpful to be able to 
read the Bible and read this language that, that is used, as he says, kind of uh, in a triumphalist way to, to be more useful for us in our tradition, um, or at least in the tradition practiced here at Spirit Rock. So, um, so I'm interested if there are any reflections or thoughts or... Yeah, it could be questions, but uh, and I don't know if this is available anymore on their website, but probably you can find it somewhere if you're interested. Well, I'll say a couple more things then. Um, Just bringing us back to step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Uh, Taken with, as Ajahn Amaro is talking about, um, the path being kind of the path of awareness, the path of awakening, of being awake. means then starting at least with with mindfulness with awareness as the basis for change and for letting go so if if we are wanting to have you know character defects or shortcomings removed that the thing that allows that to happen is the power of mindfulness. And so, so I think, I guess that then means we need to think a little bit more about what mindfulness means and how it works. Um, I think that it can seem, mindfulness can seem like a passive sort of uh, uh, state, I guess I'll call it. Um, but um, it's really the way the Buddha encourages us to be mindful is with this real level of inquisitiveness and exploration. So it's not just passively just letting everything kind of come and go by, but to really look closely. And what But I think fundamentally, at least sort of the starting point of that looking is looking at how things come to be and how things pass away. So we see this in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the, the Sutta on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Every time the Buddha suggests that we be mindful of something, and he kind of gives this this variety of different practices and and aspects of experience to pay attention to. He keeps bringing us back to then, and notice how this arises and how it passes away. So the the way that's, um, what, what's brought forward about that in most teachings on the Satipatthana is that this is about um, seeing impermanence. And it's funny, you know, I can't, 
this is something that just recently occurred to me, and and I don't, uh, it's, uh, you know, I don't know if this is an original thought or if I just haven't been paying attention. But it seems to me that that's that's missing something really vital, which is when the Buddha says, "Pay attention to the arising and the passing." He's also not just talking about impermanence, but he's also talking about cause and effect. How does that come to be, and how does that go away? Which is the law of karma. Right? It seems to be, you know, I, I'm going to have to just accept that the law of karma is kind of the thing that inspires me most about the Buddhist teachings, and that I, that's what I think recovery is about, is activating the law of karma. Because that's how addiction happens, is through repeated action. Uh, that's, you know, we start to do something and we do it over and over and it becomes a habit and then eventually becomes an addiction. And it's the same way that addiction ends, is we stop doing it. So, you know, the causes, when you take away the causes, then there's no energy anymore. There's no karmic power in that and so eventually the addiction ends. I mean, obviously, that's a simplification of what we go through, but, that, but in terms of just a process, that's what happens. So if we are going to bring about change in our lives, we need to understand how things happen. What are the causes that bring the results that we want? How are we going to know that? We're going to know by paying attention. When we're loaded, we're not really paying attention to much. You know, there's not really any awareness. And, and, and in fact, there's, in a lot of ways, an intentional effort to not see the causes and to not see the results. And that's called denial, right? Uh, so we kind of live in this kind of delusion, which certainly addiction the state of addiction and, and the state of intoxication, those are delusional states, essentially. I mean, there might, uh, might be something non-delusional about them, but basically they're delusional. They're creating this, uh, this false reality and, and keeping away any clarity of, of how things work and what's going on. So I, I don't know about you, but I never really understood why my life was so screwed up until I got sober. And then I started to see the cause and effect that was going on. So, um, when we, again, come back to this step, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. I mean, it, it's a pretty long leap from there to this, but, uh, you know, we have to make it. Some, we have to make this, we have to figure out what to do with this step. And, and you know, all that it says in the big book is, you know, say this prayer. You know, review the steps and ask God to remove it. Now, of course, there's many other texts, and, and certainly the 12 and 12 suggests more things, although I always found Bill Wilson's emphasis on humility as being a very narrow reading of the step. I kind of was like, well, that's the first word. Now, can we, what about the removing part? Uh, and so, you know, from a from the viewpoint of Buddhism, Things can only happen through some action, and, and that action can be internal. 
It can be prayer. Prayer is a form of action from a Buddhist viewpoint because thoughts are considered to be a form of action because actions are things that create karma, that create results. So your thoughts and your prayers, the words that you say to yourself, those create results because there's an effect. You feel something from them. Not that, it, that your prayers create an external effect directly. At least that's not my belief, but you know, there are, maybe there are people with mental power that can change external things. Um, but in any case, in, if we're going to stick strictly to a you know, sort of materialist view of how things work, you know, thoughts, words, and deeds are what create karma. So this you know, this hymn then really becomes um, the power of, of awareness that then is used in order to activate the power of karma because awareness itself changes karma because awareness is a mind state and our mind, whatever state our mind is in, whether, if we are open and conscious, that's creating something different in our mind. And, and that leads to other, to other things. If we are unconscious, that mind state leads to other results. So all of this starts with, with mindfulness and requires kind of ongoing mindfulness to see how things arise and to see how they pass away. We need to kind of connect the dots. One of the problems with intoxication is that it breaks awareness. And so we lose track of the dots, the connections of, of karmic uh, cause and effect. And it's something that I, re- I remember waking up one day at two years sober, literally waking up in the morning, and realizing that for the past two years, every time I woke up in the morning, I remembered going to bed the night before. And that that was really a different experience, that I had a sense of continuity in my life, that there was a kind of coherence. So, you know, when we talk about wholeness, we talk about it in a kind of a spiritual way, like, oh, being whole. But in a way, there's also this way that intoxication, you know, breaks us, breaks up our consciousness and breaks the wholeness of our consciousness. When we are conscious over periods of time in a sustained way, that's how wisdom arises. The, the reason that elders were traditionally considered to be the, you know, the repository of wisdom is because they'd been around and been aware for a long period of time. And the, you know, this is why you know, adults are more, you know, uh, have a more of a perspective on life than children. It's one of the reasons, I suppose. Um, and of course, if, but if you keep breaking your awareness, then my, my view, I've come to believe that if you keep breaking your awareness, you then break the building of wisdom, and wisdom doesn't develop. And this is one of the reasons why, why sustained recovery is valued, and why people take chips for a certain period of time, because there's an understanding that if wisdom is going to arise, it's going to require sustained awareness. 
you, it, uh, of course, it doesn't mean just because you've gotten a chip every year for many years that you've been aware. So you might not have developed a w wisdom. But uh, if you ha can't sustain that, it's generally going to be difficult to really develop an authentic wisdom, a transformative wisdom, that, uh, not just good ideas. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin, for this very light and easy to understand conversation you're having with us. Um, I appreciate the, uh, the element of karma here. And when I think about the seventh step, um, first what I think about is all my ancient twisted karma born of greed, hatred, and delusion. And uh, nice Zen. Zen. Uh... Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's real easy for me to identify with that ancient twisted karma coming from a home of mm -hmm. addiction and alcoholism and seemingly being thrust into this thing with a head start, so to speak. And uh, uh, so the, the, the inventory process that you spoke of, the fourth step, um, that's really where I became aware of some heavy stuff yeah. and uh, and taking it uh, literally as karma I then have the opportunity to keep hitting my head against the wall mm. and digging and digging my karma hole deeper or mindfully just stop and and actually by just stopping I I actually start to gain, gain ground I start to float to the top at least for a breath Um, oh, God wasn't going to take away my defects of character right away because I would have taken credit for that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and I think it's, for me, it's being quiet, uh, or contemplative. Yeah. Sit, it's definitely sitting that gives, that gives me the ability to sense, uh, the cumulative effect of not using, hmm. uh, of not slandering the law, of not, uh, you know, it's so many things. It's just so many things um, that uh, over time, I, I, I'm definitely aware of a benefit there. My actions change. Uh, the the uh, the outer world starts to be different for me. Um, yeah, some things. Yeah. Some things out of my head. Yeah. Thank you. so painful, I want to get out of this pain, 
what can I do to get out of this pain, X, Y, Z, you know, various exits we take to get out of the pain and um, to cultivate and develop mindfulness in that space between the thought and the action is huge. It really, I, I've never thought of it that way. It's sort of one of the core, uh, maybe one of the only ways yeah. to uh, address our character defects and our shortcomings. Yeah. Why it's being taught in institutions. Yeah, now. yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I point to. Uh, actually, tomorrow I'm going to a treatment center that I go to once a month, and it's one of the first things that I talk to people about the importance of mindfulness and recovery because, yeah, you're still going to have those thoughts and feelings and cravings. And if there isn't awareness of them with a different intention, then why wouldn't you just go back and do the same thing? So, so awareness is the only thing that makes it possible to to break that cycle. Uh, you know, that's I mean, that's what exactly what the Buddha is talking about. You know, I mean, it's the same thing that the Four Noble Truths say. You know, he says, you know, there's this cycle where people are grasping after pleasure, thinking that that's going to be the answer, and until you see that that's not the answer and take another path, you're just going to stay on this cycle. And the only way to see that is to be present in the moment and watch that arising. And so one of the things that I like to point out to people and and suggest in your meditation practice is to notice that moment when you realize that you're thinking. Notice how you feel right then. So, and then, and then just notice that feeling, and then come back to breath, and notice how it feels to take a breath and come back into your body. And what, what I usually feel in that process is I feel a little tight or tense or edgy when I'm thinking, because my thoughts are usually about something that I either want to get or want to get rid of. And so that feeling, when I'm thinking like that, that's the tension or stress that comes up. And I feel that when I'm mindful and catch that, oh. And then I come back to the breath, and ah, oh, okay, I, just, I stop thinking, and I just come back into my body, and I let go of it. Right there, that's the experience of the noble truths. It's the experience of how thinking and grasping causes suffering and how letting go of that grasping ends suffering. And that through awareness I can break that cycle. So that's like the key foundational insight of Buddhism. And you can experience it every time you sit down to meditate. It's not something mystical or distant. It's very real. And so when you practice that in a formal way, just noticing every time, like, oh, yeah, okay, ah, yeah, oh. and just keep feeling that, you know, because people sort of think, say, oh, you know, I think so much when I'm meditating, I can't, that's okay, you know. Notice how it, when you notice it, notice it, but notice what it feels like, and then notice how it ends. And so what you're doing when you 
keep watching that process is you're training yourself to not be so seduced by your thoughts, to be, to have a, a, a felt understanding that letting go is the way to freedom in any moment. So if you are walking down the street or you're driving your car or you're doing anything in the course of a day and you catch that tension, you can go, oh, here's that thing that I've tr been training myself to notice and to let go. Oh, I'm just going to let go. Because there can be, you know, there's a lot of arguments for not letting go, right? Like our economy is based on not letting go. So your job is based on not letting go. Your relationships are based on not letting go. So th there's a lot of reasons, uh, you know, we, we need a motivation to let go. We need a reason to do it. And, and to see that, oh, when we see, oh, it really, it's really true what the Buddha said, clinging causes suffering, letting go brings freedom. And that doesn't mean you have to quit your job, get out of your relationship, you know, or anything else like that. It just means it's, it's happening up here. If you can let go up here, you can continue to live, you know, somewhat the same way, you know. So, some modifications based on the precepts and wise choices, but... But uh, that, so that's this process we're trying to learn. And, and, I, and I don't think that that's explained enough in mindfulness teachings or in meditation teachings. That, that, that's what this, and that's why I think people so often get stuck with, oh, my meditation isn't any good because I can't stop thinking. It's like, that's fine. Just in those moments when you notice you're not thinking, notice that process. Just keep noticing that. Don't worry about that there are thoughts. In fact, the thoughts then, you start to realize that the thoughts give you the opportunity to have this experience. They become the training, the thing that you're working with, the tools for training. So if we don't get too caught up in, oh, I want to meditate and feel really peaceful and loving, and oh, you know, and I'm not, I feel kind of, uh, okay, just feel the, uh, okay, uh, and just keep, keep doing that. You know, gradually the mind gets more drawn to the ah, and doesn't want to get caught up in the in the thinking and the grasping. Well, you are a quiet bunch tonight. <laughs> Groups take on their own character, but a lot of you are regulars here. I guess uh, maybe it was the part about go away. And I started, with, started off on the wrong foot. Well, let's do a little practice then. Let's just sit for a moment. And since I've just described a process to you, I want you to try it and see if what I just said is true. I want you to start to pay attention to your breath. And then when you notice that your mind is really gone, when you're completely spaced out, right then see how your body feels. See if there's some visceral or even mood or emotional feeling. 
just feel that and then come just bring your attention back to your breath and feel how that feels and see if it's true what I just said. When you realize you're thinking, see how that feels. Then come back to the breath and see how that feels. So did anybody feel that experience? Uh-huh. Good. I mean, the other good thing about that instruction is that it takes the onus off the idea that I'm not supposed to think, which makes adds this self-judgment to our meditation. And, uh, instead of worrying about that, it's just, yeah, you notice how that feels. Very simple. And we, I think I can safely say, I, I feel that I can safely say, that besides describing the 
Four Noble Truths in that process, we're also describing step seven. That in coming back to the breath, that our suffering is removed in that moment. Maybe not all of our shortcomings, but, you know, shortcomings are impermanent, right? They just appear and they disappear. And in that moment, we can let go of them, the grasping of the mind. And I think that's, for me, that's an important way of engaging in the steps as a meditative process, not as, here's my inventory and I've got to like, you know, shovel it into trucks and have it be removed and then everything's gone. But rather that, you know, I sit and I feel the power, my powerlessness over the thoughts arising, but then I'm committed to, you know, turning it over to this process. In that process, stuff comes up, I see it, but I let it go moment by moment. That's the first seven steps anyway, uh, right there in just a a moment of meditation or or a period of meditation, certainly. Uh, Because I certainly don't think of the steps as this uh, bounded... uh, process that begins and ends. I think it's useful to work the steps in a formal way and do a full inventory and share it with someone and do that whole process and amends and all that. But then in terms of an ongoing uh, practice and program, um, you know, coming back to steps six and seven is kind of uh, always going to be necessary. Some things get removed and some things just, uh, you know, fall away temporarily and come back. So for me, it's more of a process of living living this process, living within it. And of course, there's a vital aspect of acceptance in that, you know, I think, you know, one of the real pitfalls of, of any spiritual path is the expectation that we're going to be fixed through it. Uh, if I work the steps, I'm not going to suffer anymore. Or if I uh, meditate enough, I won't have any stress or I won't, you know, get angry anymore. Um, And then when that, when those things come back, then we either blame the process or we blame ourselves, and and we create another level of suffering. So understanding that you know, we are imperfect, life is inherently challenging. Um, that allows us to engage the difficulties of life without the added, added burden of self-judgment or, uh, or um, resistance, kind of, it shouldn't be this way. I mean, it shouldn't. Uh, we can all agree. Things shouldn't be this way. I don't know why we think that, but 
you know, because we want it to be nice. We want everything to be pleasant. Um, and, you know, in the mind, I think, <laughs> one of the traps, too, is that, uh, and the dangers of having a human mind, is that we can conceive of a utopia. We can conceive of perfection. So then we set up this image of how it should be. You know, oh, people shouldn't fight. You know, there shouldn't be hatred. There shouldn't be greed. It, and, we, and we can have moments when we're not feeling anger. Lots of moments. And there's lots of non-hatred. There's lots of non-grasping going on. So we say, why can't it be like that all the time? So we set up, and our mind projects that. And then reality, of course, comes into conflict with that. And then all the additional problems <laughs> arise on top of the ones that are, I don't know if I want to call them inevitable, but that are just inherent to existence. Now that's why we say that acceptance is the answer to our problems today. It's not the only answer, but it's one of them for sure. All right, my dears. So let me just say... Um, that uh, there are these books back there. These are my self-published workbook. And I, because I published it myself, I don't have to charge what the publishers would charge. So they're only $10. And I get all of that. Well, I had to pay for them. But anyway, we won't go into the details. It works out better, though, I'll say that, than when the greedy publishers take all my money. And I love the publishers. But, you know, it's just, okay. And then this retreat, come there. I can't talk as much on this retreat because it's mostly silent. So it's much better. Um, and uh, let's see what else. Um, I will be back here the second Friday of August. But you should just skip that one and come back in September because then I'll be retreated up. I'll be all juicy and I'll be like, wow. Oh, he's not an asshole. I don't know. <laughs> it's all impermanent. Yeah. So let's just close with the dedication of merit. May the benefits of our practice and our coming together tonight be shared with all those who suffer from the pain of addiction. May it radiate out to touch all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you.